0: This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. Welcome to the podcast once again. We have a free-ranging discussion today with Blake Bowles. Um, He's a free-ranging guy. So it, it's fitting. But before we get to that, just a few program reminders. As always, you can access episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Just search for Isaac Morehouse. Um, you can also find every episode as well as some notes and links along with them and a new blog post every single day, seven days a week at IsaacMorehouse.com. Um, there's some other information there as well about some of the books I've written. And if you have questions or topics of conversation, uh, comments on the podcast or anything else, feel free to contact me at Isaac Morehouse at gmail.com, or you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, etc. So without further ado, we will get to today's episode with Blake Bowles. Today I am joined by international man of mystery, Blake Bowles. Uh, Blake, welcome to the podcast. Thanks,
1: Isaac. I'm flattered.
0: Yeah. So um, I said that because I was trying to decide how to introduce you. And and well, you're, you've done a little bit of everything. So I'm just going to I'm going to give a short bio and then you can correct me if I'm wrong. Sounds good. All right. So uh, Blake Bowles is an educator, entrepreneur, world traveler, self-directed learning advocate and trail runner. He's got several different programs for uh, teens, or he's he's launched and been involved in. I don't know how many you have going right now. We can talk about that. But programs for teens um, in particular who are looking to get experiences outside of the classroom. He's the author of The Art of Self-Directed Learning, uh, Better Than College and College Without High School. He's been on TED Talks, The Huffington Post, USA Today, all over the place. Um, I also love there's a part on your website where it talks about um, here we go. You you've worked as a high volume cook, Aurora Borealis, physics researcher, delivery truck driver, math tutor, outdoor science teacher, EMT medic, summer camp director, market researcher, web designer and windsurfing and tree climbing instructor. So you've you've had a lot of experiences for being uh, a relatively young guy. How, How does that how does that massive bio I just spat out there? How does that work for you? (laughs)
1: <laughs> it works fine for me. It's all true that the one thing that I omitted on that bio is the marketing research job was actually a snowboarding marketing research job. So I got to snowboard around Heavenly Ski Resort in Lake Tahoe, California for an entire winter, five days a week, cutting lift lines, interviewing people on lifts, giving them a free chapstick at the end <laughs> and saying thank you and then taking a run for myself.
0: Oh, my uh, gosh.
1: So the bio has worked well for me. Yeah, that it's, is, yeah. it's been a good life so far.
0: That's amazing. So. I, it, to me, it, it seems like the, the theme that's sort of driving you and motivating you with all your current projects and activities you're writing, you're also a podcaster, you have a, um, a wonderful podcast as well. Um, the theme seems to be this idea of self-directed learning. What got you so passionate about that?
1: Well, I have this distinct memory of being bored for so much of K through 12 education you know, I don't entirely condemn it. I definitely had, uh, some great teachers, some inspiring people who would, you know, it would have been more difficult to find those people and make them part of my life if I wasn't going to school. And I definitely learned some things in school, but that, that does not make up for the overwhelming sense of boredom and uh, loss of autonomy that I felt being in the classroom. And, uh, this sort of gestated, uh, when I was in school and I went to college to study astronomy and physics. because I thought I wanted to be a research scientist. And then it it all sort of came out when somebody handed me a book by John Taylor Gatto, who's the New York city public school teacher who taught for 30 years and did a lot of innovative stuff, getting kids out of the classroom. And then he quit teaching and he wrote an op ed to the wall street journal. And he said he didn't want to make a living hurting kids anymore. Hmm. And, reading that, I I sort of rediscovered my my passion for education. I've I've always liked working with kids and I liked working at summer camps. Um, But when I started getting into the alternative education literature, that's when the the phrase self-directed learning really started taking hold in my mind because uh, I don't believe self-directed learning is about institutional versus Mm non-institutional learning or structured versus unstructured. It's really about consent and making a fully informed decision, uh, with whichever educational environment you choose to put yourself in. Mm. And so that's what self-directed learning really means to me. If you're looking for the one sentence answer there, it's, it's kind of like
0: consensual learning. Mm. That's, um, that essay by Gatto was hugely influential for me as well. He was one of the, you know, he was one of the earlier thinkers I came across. And I mean, I, I grew up homeschooled, so I was, I was partially there, but I really hadn't, I hadn't really thought too much about um, you know, just the 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 damage with this sort of default mindset that you just kind of plop down and follow a curriculum that's laid out for you, and you know everyone should be judged by the same grades at the same ages and all this stuff. So I mean, it really Gatto's work and a lot of the um, Sudbury Valley School stuff really really helped me grow uh, as well. Okay, so this was so as an undergrad, you came across this work. Um, what happened next? Did you jump into the workforce and sort of just keep this as a as an intellectual interest or what where did your path take you after after college?
1: Well, I discovered this alternative education stuff at a pretty crucial moment, which was the start of my junior year and that's when I had just taken quantum physics, which was my first taste of of real physics, which is really just real math. and mm-hmm. I could always just do enough math to get by, but once you you had to love math at, at this point. And I was realizing that I was not going to make a very good research scientist. I was thinking about these, uh, these other paths I could take, maybe just becoming a high school science teacher. I was thinking about maybe dropping out of college and becoming a snowboard instructor. Uh, and so when I, when I <clears throat> got introduced to Gatto and the Sudbury Valley School books and Summer Hill and Grace Llewellyn and, mm-hmm. and everyone else in this vein, um, I quickly started looking around for a way to, to study this full time without radically shifting the, my college situation. Hmm. And uh, I was going to UC Berkeley for pretty dirt cheap tuition uh, at least uh, in, in, in recent history. I think it was about <laughs> eight thousand dollars a year in that, tuition. That's for dirt
0: a, cheap a, yeah yeah
1: for a, a public Ivy that's that's pretty darn good. And um, I, I really enjoyed the place where I lived in at Berkeley which was the student co-ops, the the cooperative, living system. And I was in a co-op called Casa Zimbabwe, which was a 150-person behemoth uh, structure, just one block north of campus, uh, co-ed, sort of a cross between a, a fraternity or a sorority and a dorm. Hmm. And it, it was just the most incredible social experience I'd ever had. And I really didn't want to leave that. And so I thought, how can I study alternative education without, uh, you know, while still being here at Berkeley? And so I started uh, searching around and I was dismayed initially because there was uh, one department called IDS, the Interdisciplinary Studies Department. And I said, can I take my previous work in science and combine that with future work in education and still graduate? And they said, well, we don't really let people combine hard science majors with liberal art majors. <laughs> You'd have to go and take all these, uh, these prereq courses, which were sort of kind of throwaway courses as far as I can tell. And... Uh, I just said, no, that sounds like you're going to give me semesters more work. So I kept digging and kept digging. And luckily, Berkeley has this history of being, uh, you know, has the free speech movement Mm -hmm. in its history. And, you know, it's ostensibly a place where you can, you know, say what you want and do what you want. And so a little bit more digging uh, turned up this thing called the individual major, which it was essentially, it didn't have, there was no building for this. There was a, a lady in Campbell Hall on Berkeley campus that had a a filing cabinet, which was the individual major. And there were seven undergrads doing this out of 20,000 total undergrads. But essentially, you got to design your, your major completely from the ground up. You chose every single class. You could do as much independent study as you wanted. And the two conditions were you had to get two professors to sign off on what you were doing, and you had to write a senior thesis paper. And so I found this, and I convinced one astronomy professor, who I knew well, to sign off on it. And I found an education professor who was sympathetic to the whole alternative scene to sign off on it. And all of a sudden, I had this carte blanche to to study whatever I wanted and get credit for it um, in the college system. And so I feel like I really lucked out in this regard because I, I think I walked away from college assuming that every uh, college or university has something like the individual major. Hmm. And what I discovered by talking to people is that that most don't, or maybe they're in more uh, more tightly controlled interdisciplinary uh, studies type type programs like yeah. the one that I was not interested in. So I designed a major called alternative schooling and science education. The science education part was really kind of BS because I just had to justify <laughs> my two years of science and math. And then I just uh, did a lot of independent study. I volunteered at some local Sudbury schools uh, in the Bay Area. Hmm. And I just did a ton of reading. It was mostly me reading on my own and getting credit for it, and then I took some courses in the education department, uh, which we could talk about more. Those were weird, and um, it, it was a really cool experience, and it worked out for me. And I wrote a really crappy senior thesis paper, which I, I believe was a good preparation for writing something of, you know, even mediocre quality later on in life. <laughs> Got to get the crap out first. Yep. And I graduated um, only a semester later
0: than I would have. Uh, otherwise so when you graduated um did you was it this immediate pressure like i've got to i've got to earn an income somehow or was it more were you more motivated by i've got to find a way to continue pursuing this uh, alternative education stuff and and, and turn this into some kind of a career
1: so i was uh, you know privileged enough not to have any student loans uh, you know, Berkeley was cheap enough at that point, And I did work throughout college and, and pay for uh, a good portion of my room and board expenses that I, I walked away without any, you know, financial obligation. And I had some savings in the bank.
0: That's and huge. So, the amount of freedom that gives oh, you is so huge.
1: Yeah. I mean, that started my life on a trajectory that, uh, you know, if instead of having, you know, $7,000 in the bank, but if I had to, if I owed $17,000, yeah, I'm yeah. not sure what I'd be doing differently. Maybe I'd, I'd be a high school science teacher today. Yeah. I'm not sure. Maybe I'd be an awesome high school science teacher. Who knows? <laughs> um, so I wanted to continue uh, exploring this educational path. And I, I did that by working in the field of outdoor education, which is really uh, robust in California. I think largely because Cal- the state of California requires that all fifth or sixth graders go through one week of outdoor education. Hmm. And so I worked at essentially, so
0: these are like ed- private companies that, that do camps and things that schools exactly. will sign up for. Okay. And
1: Throughout college, I'd worked at a wilderness summer camp uh, during the summers. And then what I really wanted to do is just keep doing a summer camp year round. And so luckily hmm. outdoor ed provided that. And I could work in the spring and the fall. Uh, my first job was at a place called Astro camp, which was like astronomy camp. And, and so it was a pretty perfect fit for a recent astrophysics major dropout. Yeah. Um, so that's what I did for a couple of years uh, to sort of get my feet wet. And, and it, it was really experiential education. There's lots of limitations to outdoor ed. You only work with kids for three to five days. You can only do so much with that. And you are t- sort of bound to this curriculum. But there's a lot of room for improvisation also. And so I, I always recommend outdoor ed as a great starting uh, career for anyone who's interested in the outdoors and in education, and especially in experiential education, it's really easy to get into.
0: So you are, um, yeah. I have sort of two separate questions here, but I want to ask them kind of based on the same structure. So you're you're a public personality. You do a lot of writing. You've got the podcast. You you know you you do speaking and things like that. You're kind of a a public brand. You've also launched um, a couple different uh, programs, companies related to this field. Did you did you feel like you had to get a lot of knowledge, a lot of experience and sort of become someone who was ready to write a book, put, you know, start a a website, uh, go out and do speaking, become an authority or start a business. Was it sort of like, okay, I've got to, I've got to become someone who's ready to, you know, emerge into the, into, onto the public scene, or was this something that was just kind of a gradual process? Were you, were you always writing? Were you an early blogger? Um, you know, how did you get involved in starting businesses and kind of maintaining a public persona?
1: I always liked writing and I liked doing that throughout college when I got into alternative education. That's how I sort of expressed my thoughts. Uh, it was really a lot of reading and I've always been a reader also. And I didn't stop that.
0: uh, How how much, how much would you say you read any estimate?
1: You know, I, I remember always carrying around at least two nonfiction books in my backpack at at any moment for the greater part of the last 15 years. Hmm. And You know, I'm probably like you, Isaac. I have like five books that I'm sort of (laughs) half half reading at the same time, uh, pretty much always. Um, I'm not like a super fast reader, but I'm just always – yeah, I always have my nose in a book. And to answer your question, um, the first book, I didn't didn't have these dreams of – I I certainly never thought I'd be some sort of like homeschooling – celebrity, which <laughs> I, I feel like a minor homeschooling celebrity. When I go to homeschooling conferences, I'm like, how did I end up here? <laughs> and uh, so what I wanted to do was uh, I wanted to answer this question that had been bugging me and that I'd seen bugging other people, too. And so after I'd worked in outdoor education for a few years, I um, started working at Not Back to School Camp, which is the the biggest summer camp, private summer camp for teenagers who don't go to school, most of whom consider themselves unschoolers. And it happens in the back-to-school time period, late August, early September, in Oregon and in Vermont. And it's run by Grace Llewellyn, who wrote the Teenage Liberation Handbook, which was another one of those very influential books. And when I started uh, working there, I realized that all these teenagers who are not going to school are having very little trouble getting into college, or finding jobs that they like, or kind of Getting over these traditional hurdles that, for those who are coming at, at homeschooling or, God forbid, unschooling from the outside, you know that's just the first question you have. Yeah. How can they ever find success?
0: How will they acclimate to the world? <laughs> yes.
1: Oh my gosh. And so I was uh, meeting all these teenagers. Uh, specifically, I was focused on college at that moment because I had had such a, a positive college experience and a very unique one mm-hmm. that um, I was noticing that there was a lot of talk in the homeschooling community about uh, how it's difficult to get into college and how maybe homeschooling is appropriate for young kids. But once you get into the middle of the high school ages, then you should probably go back to high school because you need a high school degree and high school record to get into a good college. I said, that's total BS. I'm meeting all these unschoolers who are doing it. And so that is the, the sort of problem that I wanted to solve. And I wanted to, to research and share what I learned with other people and so that's what turned into my first book college without high school and I actually started writing that when I had uh, gotten frustrated with outdoor education and went to South America for three months to just sort of travel and figure life out and that's when I started that's when the manuscript for that book started emerging and I sent it when it was done I got it edited by a friend and sent it to a small publisher in um, British Columbia that had published some of John Taylor Gatto's stuff that's how I found them and they accepted it and they said, all right, here, here's a contract. We're going to publish your book. And I was, I was really surprised. And, and so that's sort of how I got launched into huh. the, the more public sphere of writer, speaker, etc. So you didn't, and, you
0: didn't set out to be a writer at any point initially. This sort of, You were just motivated by these no, ideas to, to say, let me put this down in a book. Yeah, I never conceived of myself as, as being a published
1: what Writer. was the,
0: what was the writing process like? And you've done subsequent books. Um, what yeah. is that? What is your, everybody's got fascinating stories to me about how they write just sort of the process itself and the sort of the, the <laughs> emotional, psychological ups and downs and everything. What was that like for you? What's your method of, of churning out a book?
1: Well, it helped that I was in South America and taking really long buses and staying in hostels and didn't really know many people. And so I would just actually write, uh, on pieces of printer paper in really small, you know, not font, but it's handwriting, but, you know, ext- extremely small print and just fill up pieces of paper. And I would write as if, um, you know, I remember, I don't remember where I picked up this piece of advice, but, you know, write the book that you want to read. I was writing as if I was writing a final hmm. uh, book that I would want to read myself um, as in a guidebook format. I've always liked guidebooks, and I remember... This was back in 2007. Uh, Timothy Ferris' *The Four Hour Work, work Week* had mm-hmm. come out and become this big sensation. And the, the content of that book, uh, I had mixed feelings about the way that he wrote it and the style of, of guidebook uh, that it, it presented. I felt was very powerful, mm-hmm. and so I actually used that as sort of my uh, the model for my my voice of the book, and that's um, that became sort of my writing process was. Uh, borrowing somebody else's voice that I felt was, uh, very powerful, uh, not taking the same content, but writing in their same sort of demeanor and just looking, looking at how long their sentences are and looking at whether they're speaking in the first person or the third person and how long the chapters are and how many chapter headings. Hmm. And so I guess it was a, a sort of steal like an artist, uh, uh, approach hmm. to, to writing.
0: What's, um, T- t- tell me about okay so when when did you end up launching was was your first was your company unschool adventures was that the first thing you launched or did you had you launched some other um, sort of program or effort prior to that
1: I had created and failed to launch with with any rigor multiple tiny little businesses before unschool adventures and so I had a nice failure track record and then in uh, so it, In 2008, a year after uh, I had done that South America thing and and the book was in the works, I was uh, actually working at Heavenly Ski Resort and doing that snowboarding marketing research surveyor job because I always (laughs) wanted to work a full season at a resort. And uh, I was looking for my next job, and I was looking at a gap year program leader job. uh, South America gap semester, actually. And so you needed to be able to speak Spanish, you needed to be 25, have... I had my wilderness EMT certification at that moment and I had all these other, I had all the boxes checked off and I felt like I was a shoe in for the job. And long story short, I went through the whole interview process, felt really really positive about it, but there apparently were 150 applicants for two spaces um, available and I didn't get the job, but I convinced myself that I wanted to be an international trip leader because uh, again, recently uh, I'd done this international trip um, stuff myself. And then I had also been working with this not-back-to-school-camp community where I'd met all these teens and actually sort of realized what their major issues and challenges and problems were. And I realized that I could put two and two together and I could run trips myself. I didn't have to work for somebody else. Hmm. And Hmm. these teenagers who were coming from all across the U.S. and sometimes from really rural locations. I remember um, some brothers who were musicians and really nice, popular guys and they lived in Elko, Nevada, which I actually recently drove through and realized, oh, man, it's going to be tough to live in Elko, Nevada, <laughs> especially if you're a homeschooler and especially if you're an unschooler. Yeah. The, the number of other unschoolers in Elko, Nevada is probably you know no greater than zero. And uh, so I realized they are looking for these opportunities to connect with each other like they do at, at the summer camp. And they're willing to to travel for it. They're, they're willing to you know, cross state boundaries and, and international boundaries. And so I, I said, uh, I know how to run summer camps. Um, I've recently been to South America. I'm familiar with that. And I know I'm connected to this community of people who, who need something, and the travel experience might be that something. And so I, I smashed it all together. I created a website. I had a friend from Not Back to School Camp become my co-staff member. And we offered a six-week trip to Argentina. And to my, again, to sort of my surprise, it filled up. I was, I was sort of expecting to get shut down again and, and to go back to the drawing <laughs> board. But uh, it sort of became a hit. And most of the trips that I've offered ever since then, which are really just one or two a year, because I personally go on each of the trips, okay. the international ones, um, have filled up. And so it's this weird little niche, this you know long tail phenomenon of, teenage unschoolers who want to travel internationally and you know and can afford to pay a couple of thousand dollars to do it also.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um I just managed to to find this niche and it's it's worked out for me thus far.
0: That, that's a really cool you know, I had amazing experiences in my teens with international travel and most of them were through like church or religious based or sort of humanitarian nonprofits Um, but the, the basic concept, I mean, basically from age 12 to 20, every summer I was in some country for at least a week or two, sometimes as long as two months. Um, but the, the basic idea of leaving your home and usually we would go and all assemble in some place here in the States and have like a day or two of training or, you know, getting to know each other, whatever, maybe 10, maybe 20 people, roughly, you know, similar ages. And then just going and, and living abroad for a while, doing diff- different activities and things, maybe teaching English or digging ditches or running a medical clinic, whatever it might be. And the the experience, you know, there, there's this idea that these sort of humanitarian things are, are to help the people you're going to visit. And, you know, sometimes they may, but I don't think they really are like transform. You know, it didn't transform, uh, you know. Nairobi, Kenya that I spent (laughs) two months there, but it transforms the people who go. I mean, it's such an amazing experience to to get that and to be with other people. You're all out of your comfort zone together at the same time. And -hmm. there's just a lot of really interesting dynamics that develop. And and one of the things that that stuck out with me the most that I learned was the ability to love something while you're experiencing it and not be crushed when it ends. Because you know when you're like a teenager and you're like meeting people, falling in love with people, all this stuff, you're 14 years old, 15, whatever, on this trip for two, three, four, six weeks, and then it ends and you go back to, you know, where you live and they go back to where they live across the country and this was before Facebook and everything. So there really was, wasn't a way to connect. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's like going home from a long summer camp. Yeah. Session. Yeah, and like I had so, so to, much emotion.
0: Oh, it's amazing. I had to learn to like not be a jerk to my family and like everyone else. Like you don't understand, <laughs> you know, you didn't go to camp with me. <laughs> but it, the I think you just develop emotional intelligence and a lot of things is truly truly awesome experiences. So so that's unschool adventures. You're taking these these unschool kids on, on these trips, how do you, how do you pick the destinations and do you have like a pretty structured agenda or is it fairly free free flowing?
1: My method for picking destinations is essentially asking myself, where would I like to travel (laughs) in the world? Uh, well, of course, balancing that out with safety and cost and, and, you know, cultural experience. Um, so we're not going to go you know, travel to Connecticut just because I have family there, (laughs) not make for the most. Maybe it could make for an interesting trip. I don't want to shut down Connecticut immediately. Um, Yeah. So we started out going to Argentina. Then the next trip was to Australia and then back to South America for a three country Argentina, Chile, Peru. Uh, It was a lot of places that I was already familiar with or in the case of like Australia or New Zealand, I felt that I could pretty easily surmount because it's not a very big cultural and certainly not a language barrier. So, um, that those were the destinations and the activities. I, I've always prided myself on being way less structured than any other teen program that I can find, hmm. and giving teenagers a chance, always within reasonable safety limits, to go and explore foreign cities and you know, rural areas on their own. You know, doing little day trips in groups, and they'll, they'll always have a little card where they can get in touch with me, or they'll have more recently they'll have their own cell phone and. They have a local SIM card, so we can always be in touch. Um, but I just remember, let's see, I was 12, and the first time I ever went abroad with, with a group, um, I went to uh, London and Edinburgh with, I think, my, my middle school math class for a week. And I just remember every single minute of that trip being scheduled out. And what I remember the most was the <laughs> 30 minutes that we got, some, we got some free time, and my friend and I went, uh, you know, we walked a few blocks around London, and that just totally blew my mind. And so that's the kind of experience I want to provide. I want to provide a community, a positive social community experience, and that always happens. We always have great kids on these trips. And I also want to make sure there's enough freedom and autonomy for them to discover the virtues of being an international traveler and not, a, you know, not a tourist as much as we can avoid it um, for themselves. Cause that's how it worked for me too. And so we, it, it really depends on what trip we're talking about, but let's say uh, last year we did a four week trip to Buenos Aires to learn tango. And so we had a very specific focus for the trip. We're going to go and we're going to learn Argentine tango. And I found a, a private, instructor for our group who we did classes three or four days a week a week with and we went out to malangas which are social tango dances three or four nights a week and these are you know public dances these are not things put on for tourists these are actual argentines who are going out to dance tango with other strangers (laughs) and here here i am showing up with you know my co-leader cooper and my group of eight uh, teenagers from all across the U S and they're by far the youngest people in these Nancy. <laughs> and so we've got some structure, we've got an overarching theme and a, a purpose for the trip. We did a New Zealand trip where the goal was to hike from one side of the South Island to the other side. And so there was a lot of hiking and backpacking there, but then, but in each of these days, there are big chunks of time. Like for example, in, in Buenos Aires, you know, they might have from whenever they wake up, which, you know, eight or nine o'clock until um, after lunchtime to do, uh, essentially what they want you know so they say hey we discovered this really cool museum that's in downtown Buenos Aires and I said great how are you going to get there they pull out the map they show me the subway line and I said great call me when you get text me when you get there and have a fun time
0: that's awesome and
1: yeah so I, I really like the balance of having a, a clear focus while also providing a lot of chances for autonomy and for them to do stuff on their own and bond with each other because they want to hang out with each other yeah. they don't want to hang out with me
0: you know, that's so interesting that you said you remember that 30 minutes of being free to to walk around the block in London and, and that the value of just exploring on your own. I think it's really easy as parents, teachers, educators to overestimate the the knowledge and experience we bring to the table and think overestimate the value of that to young people and think, look, I've been here. I know all the best things. Let me take you to the best experiences. Let me show you them. And for kids, oftentimes just being able to figure something out on their own, even if it's something small, is more fulfilling and meaningful to them than being handed something big and amazing. I yes. I, I just took my son. He's only ten. He's he's not ready for unschool adventures yet. He will be soon though. He he came with me on a, a little trip um, to San Francisco for for work. It was like a little four day trip. And you know it's so funny. I, I had all these exciting. Okay, I'm gonna take him to see the Golden Gate Bridge. We're gonna go. You know, walk down there and the Presidio. We're gonna do all this stuff. Go to Fisherman's Wharf and go to blah blah blah. And we did, and you know he he liked it. He was he was fine with it. But his his favorite parts were one, just sitting and watching the sea lions for like an hour. I was like, do you want to go do something else? We got all this stuff on the schedule. He's like, no, I just want to watch these sea lions fight with each other. It's hilarious. (laughs) Um, But and this is the part that blew my mind. We were at the hotel and and we had a couple hours till I had a work event. I said, I'm going to take a nap. I, I was up all night. It was like a red eye flight. Um, you can, how about you jump on your computer and you can do some Minecraft or something. He loves to do that when he's at home and he's like, nah, I just want to wander around the hotel. Can I have a room key and, and wander around the hotel? I'm like, yeah, okay. You know, like look at what room number we are, what floor, what elevator bank, like you feel comfortable. Yeah, I think so. He he goes away. He comes back maybe 20 minutes later and he's like, I just stayed on this floor, but now I'm going to, I think I'm going to go down the elevator. (laughs) And he'd come back every 20 or 30 minutes. He had a little cell phone in his pocket and it was just in the hotel. It was a big hotel, but he was so, for for the rest of the four days, that was the first day. He felt like the king of that hotel. He learned it. He understood the, the domain and he's not somebody who's naturally like really good with directions. He's kind of spacey most of the time. He was so like confident and exuberant and like telling the, you know, the other guests there, Oh, let me show you where the pool is. It's on the 16th floor, you know? And it was, it was so cool. I think that was probably his favorite part just because he was completely on his own left to his own devices to find his way around and back to the room. And, you know, it was, um, it was a really, it was bizarre. I'm thinking all these amazing plans I have, these tourist things I'm going to take him to will blow his mind. But wandering the hotel freely was probably his favorite part.
1: Yeah. It's like every parent needs to be reminded somehow that they are not the, the central planner for their <laughs> child's lives. Uh, I've, Oh man, a, a great quote in my book, the art of self-directed learning about that, which I'm not able to recall from memory. Um, yeah, exactly those kind of experiences. I remember from my
0: childhood. <laughs> I know. <I'm, laughs> now you, got, I'm you guys had to go, uh, go buy the art of self-directed learning. It is a great book. Um, well, Hey, let me ask you about this concept of work. So, If I were to say, if someone said to me, oh, uh, Blake Bowles, what's he do? What's his job? I would probably say, I don't know. He doesn't have a job. He just does a whole bunch of stuff. He does a bunch of activities. He's got a a collection of things that he produces, programs he runs, things he does. Um, And I think that that's becoming more common, certainly more possible, if not more necessary, to kind of look beyond the job-based sort of life path or description of oneself um, what, what are your thoughts on whether someone should sort of pursue a, a sort of specific career with a specific job title that that's highly specialized versus just exploring and piecing together a bunch of activities that they find a way to to generate income from? Do you think there's a, a better or a worse or what what's your sort of thoughts on, on going about, um, the, the world of, you know, careers and earning a living today?
1: Well, I think that's, that's sort of a false dichotomy that you Presented there. And I think a lot of people think about employment versus self employment a lot. And I mean, I think you just need to find an interesting problem to solve and a community of people who you feel uh, like you have a very deep well of energy to serve. And so for me, it turned out to be kind of teenagers in general, but I don't think I would have had a very deep well of energy to be a high school teacher um, and serve teenagers in that way because. It's just a constant battle for power, and that's. I think that would have drained me. And so I realized that i flourished in uh, environments like summer camps or these outdoor education companies or running my own international trips with teenagers where they have a lot more freedom and autonomy, and they're making their own decisions, and they're figuring out what decision is the best one to make. And I can help uh, on the side. I can be sort of a mentor and a guide. But I'm not painting the whole path for them. And they are, are learning and failing on their own. And so that's the community I realized that I can do a pretty good job working with. And I have a lot of energy. And it will come back to me. I'm an introverted person. Like I need After I go do a, a public speaking thing, I need to go recuperate for the rest of the day. In <laughs> some quiet, dark room. But uh, when I'm working with teens, uh, that doesn't happen. I, the energy comes back each day. And then for the problems that I wanted to solve, I just felt like education, and especially K-12 through 12 education, and my focus was more on on middle and high school um, age stuff, just felt like such a big, interesting, and important problem. And one with so much room for growth and innovation. Uh, you know, I was studying astronomy and physics before, got into this stuff, and that is really interesting stuff, too. Like the the physics of how a, a star evolves is uh, is truly mind-blowing. But when I realized that the world of education was pretty lacking in terms of uh, quality alternatives that are out there, um, I realized that's a more interesting and a more immediate problem than the physics of you know, distant star systems. Hmm. And so uh, I think I just stumbled onto um, a set of really interesting problems, which is how do you provide... Um, an education for a young person that keeps them fully engaged and even an education that they would, you know, willingly, you know, submit to and throw themselves into without being coerced by any adults. Hmm. If you can design that sort of school, uh, then I think, you know, you're, you're going to be a, a very rich person or, or definitely a very esteemed one. Hmm. If you can design the school where kids are sort of banging down the doors to get there and they don't want to leave at the end of the day. Cause right now it's the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that seems like a worthwhile problem. and, and uh, that's what's kept me in, in the game. And I'm glad that I've worked for other people. and I'm glad that I did that early on because working for outdoor ed, working for the, um, for two summer camps that really ha- uh, helped shape who I am, um, that gave me the experience necessary to confidently go out and start my own company. If I had just graduated uh, from college and immediately tried to start something like unschool adventures, Um, I I definitely would have been lacking experience. And so it's both an employment and a self-employment thing. I mean, I've been self-employed for since 2008 and I would still consider going back and working for somebody else in the right situation where I'm going to be learning a lot and I'm going to be working on really, you know, interesting, hard, meaningful problems.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Somebody asked me that one time, what what would it take for you to go back to working for someone? And I, it sort of took me by surprise because I, I don't even think of it in those terms. Like, uh, in some ways I'm always working for someone. And in some ways I'm never working for someone, but myself, like the dichotomy I think is, is, is kind of false. And and I, I just said, look, if I'm creating things and building things, um, with people that I find interesting, that's what I'm interested in. I don't really care. Like technically who's the employee, who's the employer or any, (laughs) or any of that stuff, you know? Um, what would you say? Okay. So I run into, and you, you probably do too. I run into a lot of, either young people who are, um, starting on, you know, trying to decide their kind of education career path, or even people who are older, who are, who are educators, but people who are interested in being educators, uh, teaching, doing research, um, being communicators of ideas to others. And many of them love the work that, um, you know, you're doing, they love the unschooling stuff. They love the work that we're doing with Praxis. But they're like, I feel trapped because I want to be an educator. And the only way to do that is to be a professor or a teacher at a traditional school. How can I how can I be an, you know, sort of entrepreneurial educator? How can I take part in the education industry without being a part of these institutions that I'm that I'm seeking to, you know, change or offer alternatives to? What advice would you give to people who are passionate about education, but feel trapped and feel like their only option is to um, teach or be a professor?
1: Good question, Isaac. I think about that one a lot. And I think the first response is a sort of negative one, which is, it's really difficult because your competition is free. And if we're talking about K-12, through 12, then your competition is definitely free, public schools. And, you know, it's a little bit different if we're talking about college, but still, um, you know, the number of subsidies and grants and uh, loans that are available to traditional higher education institutions, obviously, dwarf um Uh, anything available to a a small uh, private startup. And so uh, I definitely would not recommend it for anyone to make money. (laughs) And uh, yeah, you you have to want to serve that community and do the interesting problems. Um, If they're saying the only way for me to be an educator in this world is to go back and get my master's or PhD or you know submit to some institution that, whose values I don't really agree in. I just think you're not taking a, a wide enough view because uh, there are many ways to educate. And if we're talking narrowly about working face to face with people, um, there are I think a lot of small community organizations, uh, you know YMCA type things, nonprofits that can give you a chance to do good work, uh, serving people and. and You won't necessarily be a teacher, and maybe that's okay, but if you can become some sort of coach or helper or facilitator to a person, if you kind of expand the language beyond just a teacher of academic subjects, then I think you can fulfill that that urge to educate because education uh, is intrinsically a part of any sort of job where you are working uh, one on one or in small groups with people. Um, if you think beyond education as, as face-to-face interaction and you start thinking about the online world or you start thinking about information uh, products that you can share with people, then there are a gazillion ways to educate people. You write, you blog, you podcast, you create you know, uh, video blog episodes. Um, it's, I, don't know, I, I just don't even – and it's so easy to get into – to publishing and to self-publishing today yeah. um, I think the challenge then becomes uh, defining your audience and uh, learning how to market and so that, you know, sort of like being self-employed, you have to learn other stuff you didn't really expect uh, on the outset but if your mission as an, if you're coming from a place of wanting to um, teach people about things they don't yet know, help them do things they're currently doing in, in inefficient ways or, or unpleasant ways, uh, to teach them to do it differently, there are so many ways that that can happen. And now is the best time in history to be an educator and to be a a freelance educator or an entrepreneurial educator. Um,
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, I I think the, the school as education sort of conflation, it really limits our imagination because a lot of people will, will be like, okay, I want to, I want to teach, I want to be an educator, but I can't see any other way to do it. And I think if you're, if you're thinking of it purely as, a teacher is someone who stands in front of people and disseminates information and they just sort of receive it, hopefully, um, then, you know, there probably is a a somewhat limited number of opportunities to just, you know, supply a good that you feel like supplying, whether or not anyone is really (laughs) consuming it. But if you if you step back and think of what is education, you know, the acquisition of knowledge, skills, experience, mentorship, it's in ridiculously high demand. It's just, it's the, the method of, of distribution doesn't have to be this kind of passive learner and active, you know, teacher who has expert, who has all the, all the information. And when you sort of zoom out and look at it that way, I think the opportunities start to start to open up. You can start to see some of those. Um, okay. So we talked, we talked about your, uh, first book college without high school. Tell us a little bit about your other two books, um, a synopsis, The Art of Self-Directed Learning, which you you mentioned briefly before, and Better Than College. Um, What are those books about and what what motivated you to write those?
1: Sure. The Art of Self-Directed Learning was just a bunch of stories from my own experience as an alternative educator and from other people who I've met along the way. That have really inspired me, that I felt needed to be told and have not yet been told, and so that's 23 different mini stories, each uh, with a unique illustration, about what it looks like to be a self-directed learner. Because I feel like that's a really weird, nebulous phrase, and I started using it because it's better than unschooler, yeah. which is better than homeschooler, yep. which you know, which are both terrible. Uh, <laughs> from the, you know, so, uh, so I just wanted to provide some uh, brief illustrations of what self-directed learning looks like. Um, Better Than College came out of, um, I actually kind of rode a wave on, on Better Than College. Uh, you know, after the recession, a lot of people started calling into question the value of the four-year college degree and the return on investment and how the, the tuition costs were you know, skyrocketing, you know, even beyond healthcare care costs. And, um, and so as I read a lot of the literature that was coming out around um, that point, which was 2009-2010, I said, this is all uh, really good from a, a theoretical perspective, but no one is providing a, a practical guide for for what to do if you decide not to go to four-year college. Let's say you decide, okay, twenty thousand dollars a year is not worth uh, what I perceive as the benefits I'm going to get out of this experience. What next? Hmm. It was just this big dark, dark, gaping chasm of doom. And I think a lot of people, even if they questioned the value of college, were still going to college because there was no good alternative. Yeah. And so, um, I decided, well, you know, unschoolers, you know, many of them are getting into colleges they want to go to and many of them are purposefully not going to college because they've had enough self-directed learning experience in their lives already that they realize they can just kind of keep going. They don't have to stop, especially if they're not going into jobs that require formal licensing. They don't want to become doctors, lawyers, college professors, nurses, etc. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, I did went through the same processes with my first book. I interviewed a bunch of, of unschoolers who had already done this. I compiled their stories. I extracted general principles and did a lot of my own research and, uh, yeah, put together better than college. And that was met with some, with some really positive reception. Cause I don't think there was any other books quite like that yet out yet. A, a few have come out since. That's
0: a, I mean, that's such a, that's such an awesome message. I mean, that's, you know, it's, it's sort of the same impetus behind, um, you know, what got me to, 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 launch Praxis is like, okay, we're, we're at this phase where many people have a pain point. They feel like the college process and system isn't right for them. And there's things about it that are just, you know, maybe it's not worth the cost. It's, it's not what it's what they've been told it is. So they've identified a problem. And then that's kind of where it stops. So it's easy to kind of take pot shots or say this needs to be different. It needs to be reformed. But if you're an individual who has that realization, you still feel stuck. And so like moving from that first step, I've got a problem to here are some potential solutions. I think there's so much more of that that needs to be done. because you're right. I mean, even now, your book uh, is one of, I don't know, very, very, very few. Um, and there's some things bubbling up here and there. And obviously, that's what we're trying to do to say, OK, once you've had this realization here's some, some ideas, here's some tangible steps you can take to create something better for yourself. That's a, that's a really, um, valuable and powerful story.
1: Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad to see that more people are, are getting on that questioning the, the college uh, bandwagon. And at the same time, I'm, I'm a little dismayed because I was, I was hoping that we would see more of an upsurge of Small alternative to college
0: programs, hmm. and um,
1: there are some. You've got one, and there's there's not a lot of other ones.
0: No, there really isn't. I, yeah. I, I'm surprised too. Um, I keep wondering, yeah. like, what what am I missing? I, it, <laughs> there's got to be more on the way, and and I think they they probably will start to bubble up um, bit by bit. But I don't know. I, I've wondered about that myself. I mean, in some ways, I look at the news industry as possibly an analogy for for a long time a good number of years once people realized that the internet like actually worked and had some value it was oh my gosh newspapers are all going to go out of business because they're going to be replaced by online content and blogs and whatever else and That was true in a sense, but it didn't happen. There was no like giant, massive, catastrophic event or there was no like, remember this one year when, you know, Mm -hmm. a million online news sites replaced all the newspapers was sort of a gradual drip over time. Some of the traditional news sites, you know, adapted and added an online component, some of the, and so in in some ways I kind of, I kind of see maybe it will, it will happen more gradually over time than in any sort of massive wave. And again, I
1: think there's an issue with your competition either being free or heavily subsidized <laughs> yeah. that that leads to inertia in the system.
0: Yeah. Um, so uh, a quick like, I don't know, I don't even want to call it uh, devil's advocate, but but an objection that I've heard some people raise to um, young people sort of traveling, whether it's taking a semester abroad, going and hiking through Europe for a year or six months or, um, you know, doing some of these unschool adventures, some of the trips that I took. It's like, OK so you've got to spend a couple thousand dollars and go to the other side of the world to find yourself. How about you just like get a job and start working hard? That will be better for you. What what would you say to someone who sort of, you know, c- comes at it from that? So this is just, this is just sort of a frivolity and, um, it's, it's sort of encouraging, I don't know, idleness or, or, some, <laughs> or something like that. What, what would your response be to that objection?
1: Well, first response is maybe they're right. Uh, maybe, the money is too much and maybe it's going to be frivolously wasted and maybe just getting the job would provide uh, the experience that this young person is looking for. Uh, Maybe they're wrong also. And I think that getting a job uh, in your local town or city or the next city over is really not the same thing as traveling to a whole different uh, continent or country or especially a place with a different language. And I remember very starkly, uh, let's see, the first time that I went abroad alone was when I was 14. And my dad asked if I wanted to do a month-long homestay program in Chile by myself. I would travel over with a group of other U.S. teenagers, but we would very quickly get dispersed into our own individual homestays. And I would have a host brother, but it would only be Spanish. And I said yes, and I'm so glad I did, uh, because that really uh, changed my life in, in a couple different ways. The, the, the first one was coming back from a very distinct culture is one of the only ways I've personally found for learning to appreciate your own culture
0: Yes absolutely and I
1: think that it's so easy for for young people to become to become like privileged entitled little shits <laughs> if they don't get a chance to go out and experience anywhere else. if yeah. you just grow up in your your protected enclave, then that's a recipe for becoming a a douchebag. I'm sorry to use such strong words, Isaac, but I feel strongly (laughs) about this. Amen.
0: I'm over here
1: just, you know, (laughs) this is great. Uh, And so coming, you know, seeing different cultures was important. Uh, Being on your own in a very foreign environment. Again, there's nothing quite like that. Sure, we could airdrop you into New York City and you could figure that out, but you'd probably figure it out pretty quickly, especially if you had a smartphone. And so going someplace far away on on your own, you know, or at least go start on your own and then have your friend join you later or your family member join you later. Again, there's nothing quite like that for building a sense of of personal power. And I can figure out this complicated problem. Like I'm in a country where I speak 20 words out of this language and I need to get to this other part of the country and I need to feed myself and bathe and sleep somewhere along the way. That is a real world problem that builds real world uh, troubleshooting and problem solving skills. And, uh, it's just like, I, I've, I've never met a young person who has come back from an, a highly independent travel experience and said like, that was really a waste of, time. <laughs> I just have not ex- experienced that person. I'm sure a few people have felt that way, but it seems like such a tiny minority yeah. that, you know, all those naysayers saying, well, you should just go get a, a job at the Seven Eleven instead. And, you know, yeah, maybe, But probably not. If you can travel, then go travel.
0: Yeah. Get the job so you can save up to go travel. (laughs) Um, Yeah, Yeah, are you? what are you working on? Any any, uh, future books or future projects? What's in the works for you right now?
1: Well, I've been struggling with the idea of how to do an online program or online school for a number of years now. That's an an ongoing theme of mine. (laughs) And uh, I'm also thinking about how to uh, start a longer sort of semester-long program. That is a sleepaway program for teenagers who don't go to school. I have a code name for that project, which is Hogwarts for unschoolers. And I'm uh, slowly putting those pieces together, and I'm working with a family who has um, a large piece of land that they're developing for groups. And so that's uh, that's something that if you hang around BlakeBulls.com, then
0: yeah. you might
1: uh, find out more about.
0: Oh, okay, Blake, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end with this. What's, what's the best piece of advice you've ever gotten?
1: Best piece of advice I've ever gotten. I think I actually picked it up through the writings of John Taylor Gatto. And he wrote about being really young, growing up in Western Pennsylvania, and uh, complaining to his grandfather one day that he was bored. And his grandfather apparently took some like rolled up magazine and, and whacked John Gatto across <laughs> the head. And he said, Don't ever say that again because. Uh, bored people become boring people and it is entirely your your choice to um, let yourself be bored or not. And I think that message really stuck with me and it's informed a lot of my views on education. And if you are bored in high school or you are bored in college, you do not have to accept that and you probably shouldn't because you're probably wasting your time and your money doing that. So go figure out something else that will make you engaged instead of bored.
0: (laughs) My guest today has been Blake Bowles. You can find him at BlakeBowles.com. He's got the Real Education podcast there. He has links to all of his books. Also, UnschoolAdventures.com is the company that uh, he runs that he's been talking about today. Blake, thank you so much for coming on the show and not being boring.
1: (laughs) Thanks, Isaac. It was a pleasure.
0: You bet.